Hello, welcome to the podcast of First Church. This message is the first message in the Life of Holiness series taught by Dr. David Bernard, and it's titled Foundations of Holiness. It was a great word, and I pray you're blessed by it again today. foundation of some principles and then we'll get to some specifics probably in subsequent weeks more so than tonight but we'll just see how we go if you've heard me teach on holiness before you'll probably hear a lot of the same things it won't be a new revelation I did write a book with my mother uh, in search of holiness which was revised in 2006 so if you want more information there's that one there's practical holiness as a follow-up and then they have a little booklet called essentials of holiness so if some of these things that I mentioned tonight you want to know more or you disagree with or you uh, want to research, well, you can look it up in some of those books and get more information. But I want to start with Hebrews chapter 12, and perhaps we'll go as a foundation uh, starting with verse 9. I'm in the, uh, in the King James Version here tonight, and as I said, there will be an outline with uh, some of the scripture references at least that you can jot down if you would like to do so. But let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9, uh, through verse, oh, say, 15. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us. We gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they, verily for a few days, chastened us after their own pleasure. But he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness." Now, here's the point I want to pause. What he's saying, of course, is we've had fathers that hopefully uh, taught us good. Most of the time they probably did, but sometimes maybe not so. Uh, They did it according to what they thought was best. And what they thought was best may not have always been what was really best. But one thing about it, our Heavenly Father is definitely instructing us and guiding us according to what is best. It's always for our good. Whatever God asks us to do, it's always best for us. It's not a burden. It's not a drudgery. He's not giving us anything that is contrary to our own best interest. It's for our best interest that we might be partakers of His holiness. We're talking about the life of holiness tonight. But I want to establish very clearly, we cannot manufacture our own holiness. Holiness is not a matter of us of filling out a checklist that I did that, I did that, I did that, and I don't do that, I don't do that, I don't do that, therefore I'm holy. There are lots of people that live that way, but that doesn't make them holy. Uh, Sometimes I admire the dedication of people like the Muslims who dress extremely modestly, uh, or the Amish who dress extremely simply, but that does not mean they have the holiness of God working from the inside out. Holiness is a way of life, and it's imparted by the Holy Spirit. We are not manufacturers of our own holiness. We are partakers of God's holiness. So we've got to start with that. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. There is some discipline involved, which isn't always pleasant. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, the feeble knees, make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men 
and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. And I'll stop with verse 14, and here is uh, my theme for this series. Follow peace with all men. And the Greek is pretty strong, pursue peace. There's our relationship with one another, horizontally. And pursue holiness. And there's our relationship with God, vertically. So both are important. Both are part of the whole. And without which, that is without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, here we see holiness is important. And here's where we part company with the world. Now think about this for a moment. If you list the Christian virtues, that most of them, the people of the world, will at least say, yes, that's a good thing to have. We believe in love. People of the world say, yes, that's good. Joy, peace. Even if we say temperance or self-discipline, most people say, yeah, you've got to have that. But if you say you need holiness, that doesn't sound very interesting to the people of the world. In fact, when is the last time in secular conversation you've heard the word holiness or holy being used in a serious way for the average person to aspire to? It may be His Holiness the Pope, you know, somebody remote and, uh, you know, living in a life that we could never live, according to the thinking of this world, or a joke, Holy Cow, Holy Joe, whatever. So, the word holiness is really not something the world understands or aspires to. But according to the Word of God, it's important. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So we better be interested in holiness, whatever it is. Now, uh, we know that it's important to be born again. And many Christian denominations will acknowledge that. They know John chapter 3. You must be born again or you can't see the kingdom of God. You must be born of the water and the spirit or you can't enter into the kingdom of God. The same scripture that says you must be born again to see God's kingdom also says you must pursue the life of holiness in order to see the Lord. They're put on the same plane of necessity or essentiality. And here's the way I look at it. If you're going to drive to Chicago, you've got to get on the right road. You've got to get on the freeway. But just getting on the right road is not enough. You've got to travel down that road to the destination. To me, the new birth is the entrance ramp. You've got to get on the right road or you'll never make it. But just getting on the road is only the beginning. What leads us from the new birth until we reach heaven is the highway of holiness. The pursuit of holiness is part of the Christian life. Now, it's a command. If you just uh, go a few pages in Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 through 16. But uh, as he which has called you is holy... So be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That old word word means your conduct, your behavior, your lifestyle. So holiness covers the whole life. Now, if I say the word holiness and you think, oh, that's talking about don't smoke, don't cuss, wear modest clothing, then you've really missed the definition of holiness. Holiness is the Christian life in total perspective. It's your behavior. It's your conduct. It's the way you live. It's your attitude, your speech. It's the whole thing. So God says, be holy in all of your conversation or your conduct or your lifestyle because it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. Now, let me share with you 
three reasons why we should live a holy life. The first reason is to please God, for God's sake. You see, we belong to the Lord, first of all, by creation, second of all, by redemption. We don't belong to ourselves. The first consideration of holiness is not what I want, not what I think is best, but what God wants, what God thinks is best. We've got to get the perspectives, the priorities, and the attitude right. Now, I do believe that God has good reasons for everything he tells us to do. I do believe we can defend the lifestyle of holiness in practical ways. But the first consideration is not what's in it for me. The first consideration is what does God want in my life? How does God want me to live? Because I do not belong to myself. He created me to have fellowship with him. We fell into sin. He could have destroyed us, but instead he redeemed us. He bought us back out of sin. Therefore, I owe my very existence to God. My first question should be, what does God want me to do with my life? That's the attitude of holiness. That's where we start. Not uh, what, what do I want, what can I get by with, or what I have to do to escape hell. That's missing the whole point. The, the real question that we start with is what does God have for my life? What is God's will? What is God's plan? 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20, it says, What? Don't you know your body is the temple of God? The temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And you'll see repeated throughout scripture, body and spirit together as the whole person. Holiness is not just external. It's not just internal. It's both. It's the whole person. We belong to God. The first reason why we should live a holy life is to please God for his sake. Second reason for holiness is for others' sake. If we're serious about being a witness in our world, we're serious about winning souls, then we should be serious about holiness. Some people think, well, if we abandon the way of holiness, we'll reach more people. But what's the point of reaching more people if there's not a transformed lifestyle? We want numbers, but numbers is not the number one criterion. If that is the, the goal, uh, maybe we should start a football team. Maybe we should have a comedy club. Maybe we should, you know, there are lots of ways that you could draw a crowd. But we're interested in seeing people transformed by the power of God. Now think about this. If someone is living a holy life different from the world, people can notice the difference. They may notice on the job that when you're treated wrong, you don't retaliate in the same kind, but you have a meek and quiet spirit. They notice that you're different. When, uh, when you get upset, you don't uh, retaliate, you don't attack, you don't, you don't use evil speech. They notice that there's peace even in the midst of trouble. There's joy even in the midst of sorrow. They see there's something different about your life. That attracts people to the reality of the gospel. Now they may laugh at you or ridicule you or even persecute you, but when they're in trouble, when they need help, who do they go to and say, please pray for me? They go to the person that's been living a holy life. So our holiness can attract people to the gospel. And you may, well, there are a lot of people that are tired of sin. They're, they're desperate, but they don't know there's an alternative. If they meet people who are living a holy life, then they see there is an alternative. Other people are seemingly happy in their sins, and you think, well, a life of holiness won't impress them. But what's ever going to change them? 
What's ever going to show them there is another way to live unless they encounter someone who's living a different way? Then and only then is there the possibility they might reevaluate and say, my life of selfish uh, indulgence is not really the best way. This other person has a much better life than I have. So Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, the Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven by seeing the life of holiness manifested in your works. That will attract people to the gospel. Third reason for holiness is for our own sake. When the Bible says without holiness, no one will see the Lord, that sounds like it's pretty important for me, for my own sake. You know, the life of holiness is the best life for us. If you think about it physically, mentally, spiritually, and eternally. You know, even physically, if you follow some guidelines of holiness, you'll have better health, better quality of life, cheaper insurance. They figure you're going to live longer. If you live a holy life, they will bet that you're going to live longer. Now, this is not the church saying this. This is businessmen calculating that people who live holy lives live longer than people who don't, on average. And then think about the obvious things. If, if uh, you disregard God's teachings on, on holiness, there are obvious uh, physical ailments that can assail you. You know, Alcoholism has a, a, an effect. Uh, addiction to drugs, uh, use of tobacco, um, sexual immorality, all those things have very definable dangers associated with them. But go beyond some of those obvious things. Think if you harbor hatred, bitterness, jealousy in your spirit. That affects you. That can affect your blood pressure. That can affect your overall health. That can affect your heart. Because human beings were not meant to live in sin. When God created us, he created us in innocence and holiness. He designed us to live according to his way. When we violate his principles, it hurts us. So don't think of holiness as God saying, I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to have a good time. I don't want you to have fun. I want you to deny yourself. But think of it as God saying, you know, this is how I design you to live. If you want to fulfill your reason for being, here's the way to do it. You know, if you buy a car or some piece of equipment, it has a warranty with it. It's a limited warranty. You've got to, you've got to maintain this car according to a schedule of maintenance. If you violate the terms of use, you void your warranty because it wasn't intended to be used the way that you're abusing it. And it could destroy the equipment or it could hurt you or someone else if you don't follow the manufacturer's instructions. Well, I see the life of holiness is the manufacturer's instructions. Here is how humans ought to live. When you violate this, it destroys family, it destroys home, it destroys society. Think about the evils that we wrestle with in our society. Don't they all go back to a violation of God's principles for living? So the life of holiness is the best life for us. Here and now, you'll have a better quality of physical, emotional, spiritual, family life if you follow some basic principles of God's word. Not to mention the life to come. So it's the best life of all. Let's move on. Let me give you a threefold basis for holiness. And what I mean by a basis is three enablers or three motivators to live a holy life. I think it's important to get this foundation right. How can we live a holy life? It's not by our ability. It's not by our good works. It's not by our efforts. 
First of all, it's by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we are saved, according to Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, we're saved by grace through faith. Now, holiness is part of our salvation. It's God working in us. And the way that God works in us is a pure gift of his grace, which we receive by faith. So we live the life of holiness by trusting in God. But that famous passage, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, that says you're saved by grace through faith and you're not saved by works, it goes on in verse 10 to say, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before, hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So in other words, we are saved freely by God's grace. We receive that salvation by trusting in him, not by going our own way. But the result is that we should produce and live a life of good works. So good works are hardly irrelevant. They're a vital and integral part of the total package. They're the result of salvation. And so you probably heard the old saying, you don't get good to get God, but you get God to get good. And sometimes we Pentecostals can get things out of perspective. You don't work your way to salvation, you work your way from salvation. You don't live holy in order to get saved. You live holy because you are saved. And so I don't go around saying, well, 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 I can't smoke today because what if the rapture takes place? I can't cuss today because what if I have a heart attack and die? You know, I can't do this because all of that. No. What I say and think is I want to please God because look what he's done in my life. I'm a child of God. I'm a child of the King. I'm enjoying God's grace. So I want to keep enjoying that. I want to live in the blessings. I want to live in the benefits. I have assurance of salvation because I've been saved by grace through faith. But I want to value and treasure that salvation. You know, Philippians 2, uh, 12 through 13, I don't think I put it in there, but it says... Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, here's the way I look at it. God's working in. We've got to let it work out. And I look at it as like having a, a, a precious vase, an expensive crystal goblet. Okay, it's a treasure. It's costly. It's valuable. What do I do with it? I don't just walk around tossing it up in the air, Throwing it over to my son and he throws it back and whatever. I treat it very carefully. I treasure it. I value it because I don't want to deliberately or inadvertently destroy this precious treasure. And so it's not that I'm working my way to get saved. It's I have such a precious treasure in my life. I don't want to do anything to destroy what God has freely given me. I have a valuable relationship. It blesses me. It blesses my family. It's a witness to the world. It's the way I live. And if I stop living that way, I'm going to crash and burn. Now and forever. So I treasure it. I handle it carefully. But it's by faith. You see, our salvation from start to finish is by faith. So it's God working in you. And you know, faith is very practical. You know, Revelation says all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. Now, lying is a sin. It's treated so casually in our day. Little white lies. Somebody the other day was telling me about a preacher who told a lie. And I was just thinking about that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell it if I did it. And I wouldn't do it, hopefully. And if I did, I'd repent. I'd be ashamed of it. Not brag about it. But here's the thing. If you really believe God is serious when he says all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, that will motivate you not to lie. And if you have a habit 
you're going to pray and ask God to break that habit, deliver you. So your faith motivates you to depend upon God to deliver you. So faith leads to holiness. Second thing is love. Jesus said, John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. We serve God because we love him. Now, love is a far greater motivator than anything else. It's far greater motivator than fear. It's far greater motivator than law. The law is a minimum requirement. Now, sometimes people accuse us as Pentecostals of being legalists. A legalist is someone who lives by rules and regulations. A legalist is someone who believes their salvation is based in their adherence to law. Now, if you think your life of holiness is what earns you a place in heaven, then you're wrong. And the people that criticize you are right to say you're a legalist. But I deny the charge of legalism. Here's what I say. The law is a minimum requirement. The law is good. It's not bad. But it's not enough to give you holiness. What really motivates us is love. Now, the people that accuse us of legalism, it appears that the alternative they give is license. Everybody do whatever you want to do. But that's not a good thing. Read the book of Judges. It's full of all kind of horrible sins, civil war, you know, rape, murder, mass destruction. And it ends, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's not presented as a good thing. That's presented as a bad thing. The proper alternative to legalism is not license. Do whatever you want to do. I'll just give you generic instruction. You go choose whatever life you want to live and you'll be a member of the church. That's not the right answer. The right alternative is love. And I will say love for God is far more stricter and more demanding than the law. I can give many examples. But let's take the example of marriage, which would be a closest analogy to our relationship to the Lord. If there's a law that says thou shalt not commit adultery, that's a good law. That's a necessary law. But that's a minimum. Perhaps when, if all else fails, that law might stop you and say, wait, don't. The consequences are too great. But if all you do is technically keep that law, is that going to give you a happy marriage? You say, well, you and your wife, my wife says, let's do this. Or my wife says, I really don't like to do that. And said, well, you know, uh, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And, you know, I haven't committed adultery. And so you're bound to be my marriage. And uh, I didn't take a vow that I would go do whatever you want to do. So I'm just going to ignore everything you want to do. That's not going to give you a very happy marriage, is it? Just because I say I'm keeping the law, I'm not committing adultery, doesn't give me a good marriage. If, if I uh, disrespect my wife, I verbally mistreat her, uh, physically mistreat her, disregard her intentions or desires or wants, that's not a very good marriage. And probably it won't work in the long run. So just keeping the law is not enough. But if I cherish my wife, if I consider her, if I actively do the things that please her, then that will give me a happy marriage. But what motivates me to do that? The law cannot make me do that. Only love will motivate me to do that. So, my wife is here tonight, but let me explain. If, uh, if I'm wearing this new tie, and Brother Duca says, Hey, man, where'd you get that tie? I like it. Brother Graham says, Hey, that's a great tie. And I go over to my wife and says, that doesn't match. It doesn't matter if everybody in the church likes the tie. If my wife does not like the tie, I am not wearing that tie. Because her opinion is more important to me than all the rest of you put together. 
because I live with her. I remember uh, one time I used to comb my hair differently, and one time my wife said, uh, I wonder what it would look like if you tried parting your hair this such and such a way. I said, well, I kind of like it the way it is. She says, okay. Well, about two or three weeks later, I wonder what it would be like if you... And then I thought, you know what? She's trying to tell me something. So I tried it the different way. She says, I like that. Well, end of discussion. Now, all these many years later, I'm combing my hair the way she thought looks best, which I agree wholeheartedly because... You know, I love causing me to say it doesn't really matter what I think. It doesn't matter what all the experts say. It doesn't matter what the hairstylist says. It doesn't matter what all these other people say. What matters is what my wife says. That's the way we need to feel about God. Romans 3, let God be true and every man a liar. If Madison Avenue and all and Hollywood and all the advertisers say, if you're going to be beautiful, you've got to do this, 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 and this. And God says, wait a minute, the way I created you is beautiful. Then let God be true and every man a liar. We value God's opinion more than everybody else. Why? Not because of law, not because we're afraid to go to hell, but because we love him. A lot of questions of holiness become very simple when we look at it from the perspective of love. For example, if you say, show me one place in the Bible, if I drink this one glass of beer, I'm gonna go to hell. Show me one place in the Bible, if I watch this one movie, I'm going to hell. Show me one place in the Bible, if I smoke this one cigarette, I'm going to hell. I can't give you a verse for that. Now, I can give you principles, and we'll probably touch on some of them. I can certainly talk to you about the evils of uh, the sin that comes through the eye, the lust of the eye. And uh, I, I won't behold any evil and on, on and on. I can give you scripture about the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't defile God's temple and so forth. But really to give you one scripture to prove this one thing that you're going to go to hell. I can't do that. But isn't that a legalistic argument? Aren't you looking for what can I get away with? If you turn it around and say, what is pleasing to God? What is best for my physical health? What is best for my spiritual life? What is best for my family? What is best for my Christian witness? What, is, what, how, what choice brings me closer to God? Then the question is obvious. The answer is obvious. When you look at it from the perspective of love, you easily see the way of holiness. And I'll move on quickly here. The third uh, enabler of holiness is the Holy Spirit. Again, I'll just point out, we are not the ones who create holiness in our own lives. But it's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we need to pray. That's why I need to study God's Word. That's why we come to church. Because holiness is not something we manufacture. It's the work of God in us. It's the Spirit of God. So we need to walk in the Spirit, live in the Spirit, have a relationship so that God's holiness can, can uh, be manifest in our lives. Now... I say here that holiness is our responsibility. Just because holiness comes by the Holy Spirit doesn't mean it's automatically coming. In other words, you can't say, well, I've received the Holy Spirit, so I'm therefore I'm holy, so don't tell me what to do. Just as I feel led, I'll, you know, I'll just, you know, I'll do holy things. And if I don't feel bad about something, well, uh, I'll just do it. And if I feel like doing something, I'll do it. And, uh, you know, if I feel like, if the, I, I remember talking to one guy and say, I'd like to see you to come to church Sunday. Well, if the Spirit leads me, I'll be there. Well, actually, 
Uh, it's not just if the Spirit leads you. The Spirit has some objective ways that He has already led you, which I'll talk about that in a minute. But my point is, we have to make personal decisions. We have to discipline ourselves. Holiness is not automatic. The power is working in us, but we have to learn to use the power. Many people have genuinely received the Spirit, but because of lack of teaching, lack of diligence, lack of study, they never implement some practical principles and they start losing what God has done in their lives. So if we see somebody that some church, well, they're spirit-filled, they have gifts of spirit, well, great, praise God. But that doesn't mean they're automatically following the way of holiness. God, just because God has given them gifts doesn't mean that they're near where they should be in holiness. Obviously, a gift tells you something about the giver. It doesn't really tell you anything about the recipient. If you come here with a $10,000 gift and you show it off to everybody, that doesn't mean that you're a multimillionaire. It doesn't mean that you have earned it or deserved it. It just means that whoever gave it to you had the money. So we sometimes judge churches, people, whatever. Well, they're so blessed. Well, praise God for that. But still, we have a responsibility to implement holiness in our lives. And I can give you scripture after scripture, but Hebrews 12, 1, the same chapter we're dealing with, it talks about that we must lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and run with patience the race that is set before us. So we have to lay aside sins and there's an implication there may be some things that are not outright sin but they're weights they drag us down so this is something we have to do god is not going to do that for us we have to run god's not going to do that for us we have to pursue holiness god's not going to do that for us it's like this building it's wired for electricity the power is here but unless we turn on the switch all the power does no good if you don't turn the switch, you're in darkness. Even though this building is wired for light, you've got to turn the switch on. So even though you receive the Holy Spirit, you have the power, but you've got to learn to use the power. The daily spiritual disciplines, the choices, the decisions, you have to resist the devil. God doesn't resist the devil for you. He says, command, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We have to say no to temptation. God doesn't do that for us. All right, let me move on. Three holiness teachers. Three holiness teachers. Number one, the Bible. The Bible is the word of God for all people, for all places, for all times. So really, all holiness teaching is going to be found in the scriptures. I'm not a believer of just, you know, unilaterally saying, do this, do that, without regard to the scripture. All holiness teaching must be based on the Word of God. Some things are stated explicitly, and then other things are principles that are implicit. But in either case, it's from the Word of God. Now let me explain what I mean. An explicit statement, don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery, wear modest clothing. And those are stated. Now you may have to figure out how to apply them, but those are objective statements that simply to ignore them is to ignore God's Word. Other things are principles that we must apply in our own culture, depending on the circumstance. You see, the Bible is not a legalistic rule book. The Bible is a statement of principles that applies to everyone, to ancient people as well as modern. The Bible says, for example, drunkenness is a sin, it's a work of the flesh. Um, Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, don't be filled with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. 
So what if you say, you know, it says, don't get drunk with wine, don't be filled with wine, so I, I, I better abstain from wine. But you know, it doesn't say anything about marijuana, cocaine, what have you. Well, was God really just concerned about the juice from the grape? No. He's concerned about the whole issue of intoxication, the issue of addiction, the issue of harm to the body, his temple. Uh, he's concerned about any substance that would draw us away from the control and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. He does not want us to be under the influence of another substance. He wants us to be only under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So any substance that would violate that principle violates the scripture. It's a principle that can be applied to new situations in new ways. Now, second teacher is godly human leaders, our pastors and teachers that God has placed for this very purpose. God has given these people to the church for the specific task of teaching God's word and applying it to our lives. Now, I don't believe that a pastor or teacher has authority to add to God's word or take away from God's word. However, he has authority to apply and implement God's word. Now, he's not infallible. I'm not infallible. That's why I suggest that you read the scriptures if you have any questions about the things that I'm saying. Study it up further. Talk to your pastors. Pray about it. You know, read the books and then make your own decisions. But if you make a decision that goes against the teaching of the pastor that God's placed in your life, that's a questionable step right there because you're standing in judgment over the person who's been given that role by God to do the very thing he's doing. Now, if the pastor is just a charlatan, a fraud, he's not trying to use God's word, he doesn't care about God's word, he's just giving his own personal opinion, then that's one thing. If he's unethical, immoral, and false doctrine, so on. But if he's sincere and honestly trying to seek God's word and apply God's word, you need to listen to that. Even though you disagree with one little thing, well, I don't see it exactly that way. Well, we don't want everyone saying, well, I don't see it exactly that way and giving an uncertain sound as a church. God has given pastors and teachers for the very purpose of guiding the church. And if you go against that sub to your own judgment, you are stepping out on a limb. Now, if he's in false doctrine and you're right, well, I guess you're vindicated. But what if you're the one that's wrong? I mean, you're taking a big leap you know, it gives me a, an illustration would be when, the, uh, when tobacco was discovered by the Europeans when they came to America, and uh, soon it was all over Europe. It's interesting, back then the Methodist preachers, including John Wesley, preached against tobacco. Well, they had no medical knowledge. It wasn't until the 20th century that uh, medical science actually proved how detrimental, how harmful that tobacco was to the human body. Well, people back then could have said, oh, John Wesley and all you holiness preachers and all you Pentecostal preachers, you're just strict. You're just denying us of having fun. You don't have scripture for that. And they could have pointed out to some of the scriptures about your body as the temple of the Spirit. So on, but, but, you know, somebody could say, well, I just don't agree. I don't think that applies. But if, and you know, all of medical science backs me up. All of psychology backs me up. All of the educated people back me up. Well, you would have been wrong and the preachers would have been right. I do believe God guides the preachers, especially as we work together in a ministerial fellowship. I do believe God guides the pastors and teachers to find how to apply the will of God to the 21st century using the principles of God's word. So I recommend 
that you follow uh, the maximum of your own personal convictions plus your pastor's teaching, then you'll know that you're pursuing holiness because you're following as the Lord leads you and you're following the God leaders as they lead you. And so together you can find the will of God. The third holiness teacher is the Holy Spirit. We have an internal prompting of the Spirit. Uh, and that's, that's wonderful. There are times we're in a situation where we have to make instant decisions. You don't have time to call the pastor and say, I need a counseling session. You don't have time to call three days of prayer and fasting. You've got to do something right then. It may be a prompting of the Lord to do something, or it may be a caution from the Lord not to get involved. We need to be sensitive to the voice of the Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit within us will not contradict the word that he inspired for everyone. And the Holy Spirit within us will not incite rebellion to the leaders that he has placed in our lives. But in cooperation with the other means that God has given of guiding us, the Holy Spirit can give a personal prompting and, and teaching in time of need. Now, let me give you, since I've talked this whole time about holiness, it might be good to say what it is. Let me give you a definition of holiness, and I'll, this, will be, uh, this will take a few minutes, but this will be my last point tonight. When we talk about God, it's easy to say that holiness means absolute purity, perfection. That's no problem. Holiness is easy to understand when we say God is holy. The problem comes in when we say we are holy. Is there anybody here perfect, pure, absolutely sinless? Should we just give up and go home? How, how, we're not holy. We're... It's over with. Nobody's perfect. You know the old saying, if you find a perfect church, don't join it. You'll mess it up. There's no one who's perfect. Well, in relationship to created beings, including us, I think there's a secondary definition of holiness. We are holy as we conform to the character and will of God. And I will give you two words, which I like to use, and I'll Justify them from Scripture. And if you can remember these two words and you don't remember anything else I said tonight, then I will have achieved my objectives as a teacher. Okay? Two words. The first word is separation. The second word is dedication. Biblical holiness involves separation from sin and the world system, the world's values. And positively, it involves dedication or consecration to do God's will. There's two aspects, like two sides of the same coin, separation and dedication. It's like marriage. If you want to enter into that close, intimate relationship, the most intimate relationship that two human beings can have, you've got to separate yourself from all other relationships, past or future. It's not a bad thing to be separate, separated if you're separated for a purpose. So we're separated from sin unto God. That's the basic concept of holiness. You see that in the Old Testament. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And I got to thinking, Saturday, how can a day, 24-hour period, be holy? What would make a day holy? What would make a day not holy? Or it talks about all the vessels used in the tabernacle, the temple, and they're called holy. Well, how can pieces of metal be holy or not holy? Well, here's how. Separation and dedication. Six days of the week you work, the seventh day was separated. Don't work, day of rest day of worship given to God all the vessels they were separated from all earthly use when Belshazzar tried to use those vessels for secular purposes the judgment of God fell upon him they were separated unto God they were no different quality than other metals 
but they were separated for a purpose and dedicated exclusively to God's use. In that sense, you and I can be holy in his sight, even though we're not perfect. Even a newborn child of God can be holy in God's sight because at that moment, they're separated from the world. They have been dedicated to God. But the key is they need to pursue holiness, continue on that same path, that same trajectory. That's how we can be holy. Now, let me, let me go to Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I will read, oh, let's see, let's take a look at um, verse, uh, well, we can just go ahead to verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them, walk in them. I will be their God, they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. I will receive you, will be a father unto you. Ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Notice, we're, we're talking about holiness. We're talking about perfecting holiness. And the key ingredient here is to separate ourselves from unclean things. He says, don't touch unclean things. He's not talking about physical dirt. What he's saying, there's some things apparently in this world that are spiritually and morally unclean. Before we even talk specifics, there's some places Christians shouldn't go. There's some activities Christians shouldn't engage in. There's some things Christians shouldn't say. There's some things Christians shouldn't wear. We are to be separated from unclean things. Now, the sad thing is in most churches of Christianity today, there is no real concept of separation. You can join the church, become a deacon or elder or maybe pastor, and there really is not much distinction from the world around you. Well, whatever is right, that can't be right. A true biblical church is going to have some definite points of separation from the world. Now, I think those points can be justified by individual scriptural teachings, but I'm saying there is a concept. Instead of just arguing over every little teaching, step back and say, am I living a life of separation? On these little points, if I want to overthrow all them, where would be the separation? There's got to be this principle of separation from the world around us. Now, if we will do that, then God has this relationship with us. So, because of these promises, notice, it says, cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Notice, personal responsibility. Cleanse yourself. Holiness is not automatic. There is some self-discipline. That is not works righteousness. That is not salvation by works. Some people say, well, if you try any disciplines, if you have any set disciplines in your life, you're just a legalist. No, cleanse yourself. God doesn't do that for you. You've got to do it for yourself. Notice, flesh and spirit. There's sins of the flesh and sins of the spirit. Holiness covers both. Sins of the flesh. Murder is a sin of the flesh, pretty obviously. First John chapter 3, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. Hatred is a sin of the spirit. If you commit adultery, that's a pretty obvious sin of the flesh. Jesus said, if you lust for someone, you've committed adultery in your heart. That's a sin of the spirit. Now, true holiness involves cleaning the inside and the outside. Now, as Pentecostals, we're one of the few that really teach holiness involves the outward person. We're right to say that. You know, 
the world might say, well, you know, you go out to the beach and people are wearing bikinis and shorts and whatever. Well, that's, nobody's trying to be immoral. Nobody has an attitude of adultery. They're just all, this is what's convenient. This is accepted. Everybody understands it. It's meaningless, whatever, whatever. You could say the culture accepts it. The only problem is human nature is the same. Human biology is the same. Uh, men's uh, wiring from their eyes to their brain and to their hormone glands is the same as always. So even if you have a pure, innocent motive, if you interview the 10 guys on the beach and ask them what they're thinking about and they give you an honest answer, I think it's going to be the same as it always has been regardless of culture. I think, in other words, it's not just your attitude of your heart. What's on the outside is definitely relevant to holiness, and you cannot escape that. We are physical beings. And so holiness must be applied practically on the outside. It cannot be merely internal. You know, it's something about, uh, I've had this discussion with my wife, and uh, she'll, uh, we're getting dressed to go to some special occasion, and she'll say something like, I don't have anything to wear. And I'm thinking, well, there's a dress here, dress here, dress here. She's on the front row, so I'll be as kind as possible. We'll be ending real quick here. But, you know, I'm thinking there's plenty of things to wear. But I guess what she's saying is there's nothing that really matches my mood and the occasion at this time. So what you wear does represent what you're what your mood is on the inside. Also, what you wear on the outside can reflect, or can not only reflect, but transform the inside. There have been times, especially when our kids were little, I'd come home, she's had a rough day with the kids, she's feeling, you know, all out of sorts, doesn't feel very nice and pretty and all that, but then we have to go somewhere, uh, we change clothes, and we get in the mood, especially if it's a new dress, and suddenly the mood changes, everything's okay. You know, I'm using dress as an illustration. My, my point is, our actions reflect what's inside. Also, if you act in a certain way consistently, it starts changing what's inside. There's an interrelation. There must be a harmony between outside and inside. When there's not, the human nature tries to find a balance. That's why if you have the Holy Ghost, but you never apply the spiritual disciplines, you can't stay in that imbalanced state. You start losing that desire. On the other hand, if you are not convinced totally of everything that's important, but yet you try to follow what the Bible says, you'll find your spirit being transformed by the process of obeying God's word. So my point is, holiness got, has got to involve the outside and the inside. Now, since we Pentecostals are some of the few that emphasize the outside, we have the corresponding danger of neglecting what's inside. Because, you know, if, if you're singing in the choir and you're wearing makeup and jewelry and various other things, we can see that immediately. But if you have bitterness and hatred, jealousy, prejudice, we may not be able to see that. Or if we do, it's kind of hard to pinpoint it and say, you know, you need to get out of the choir tonight because I, I believe you have a bad spirit. So we can convince ourselves that we're holy when we're far from holiness. We must cleanse the inside as well as the outside. Obviously, the inside is even more important. So just because we emphasize some external distinctives doesn't mean we should neglect. In fact, it means we need to be that much more concerned about examining ourselves and asking God to examine our hearts. Now, 
perfecting holiness. It is a process of perfection. And this will help us if we understand that it's a process. When my oldest son, Jonathan, was born, he's 24 years old now, my wife thought he was a perfect baby. Perfect. Now, he couldn't walk, he couldn't talk, didn't have any teeth, he couldn't do anything productive. The only things he could do were cause problems. But he was a perfect baby. And, of course, I agreed with her. But now, if I told you at age 24, he still doesn't walk, still doesn't talk, doesn't have any teeth, lies there in bed and just causes problems, is he perfect? Well, sure. He was perfect then, perfect now. The answer is no. We expect growth. So we expect growth into perfection. Now, I baptized a new convert, and uh, they lost their jewelry in the water. Uh, I baptized a new convert, and I, they had such a joyous experience, I thought I'd have them testify. This is the blankety-blank best thing that ever happened to me. So I felt like, well, wait, we need to go through this again. <laughs> I need to hold you down longer. <laughs> Something didn't take. But, you know, they're a baby. I believe they're holy in God's eyes as a baby, even though they've never paid their tithes, even though their dress is inappropriate as of the moment they got baptized. But a year later, five years later, ten years later, if they still, their speech is still ungodly, if their dress is still ungodly, if they don't pay their tithes, they don't come to church faithfully, well, that's a little different story, isn't it? We expect growth. Now, the reason I mention that is... First of all, we shouldn't judge others. So don't judge the church down the street or the person down the end of the pew because that's not for you to say. God knows where they've come from, where they are in his plan. In, in God's eyes, they may be growing just at the right rate. But you who have been in Pentecost for 50 years and still have a bad attitude, God may say you're not growing where you should be. This person is growing a lot faster than you are. In my eyes, they're more holy than you are. So we can't judge others. On the other hand, we can judge ourselves. And we should, should not sit there and say, well, I'm obviously two times as holy as that person. Look at the way they're dressed. But ask yourself, where am I in relationship where God expects me to be? So don't compare yourself with another person. Compare yourself to Jesus Christ. And until you're as holy as he is, you have room to grow. So all of us are in pursuit of holiness. We have not arrived and we will not arrive until the Lord calls us. So that's how we can be strong in our own personal convictions and even our uh, attitude as a church and yet be tolerant of people at different levels of protection and pull them in and encourage them and move them along, be an encouraging witness to those around us without having a judgmental spirit. Because we're in the process of perfection. Now, I'll close with this. Romans 12, 1 through 2. And this is the positive side, the dedication side. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I'll start with this in the next lesson next month. But notice, present yourself. There is the positive side of dedication or consecration. He says present your bodies. If he said present your mind, you could say, I, I serve God in my mind. I it's just unfortunately every once in a while my flesh just indulges. 
But when he says present your body, the only way you can present your body is if you engage your mind to do it. So I think what he's really saying, present your whole self, even your body. For those of you who think it doesn't matter what you say, what you do, what you wear, he says present your whole self, even your body, as a living sacrifice. Now a sacrifice in the Old Testament, that animal's life was taken, its will, its desires, its future was all forsaken. God is not asking for a dead sacrifice, but a living sacrifice. We voluntarily surrender our dreams, our desires, our future, our will to God. But don't get a martyr's complex. After all, it's your reasonable service. It's the best deal you ever got. Why are you worrying about it's such a great sacrifice? From the flesh's point of view, it's a sacrifice. And every once in a while we have to say, look, Jesus died for me on the cross. If I have to suffer a little inconvenience, persecution, ridicule, if I have to go out of my way, if it costs extra money, so what? I'm supposed to sacrifice. But then after you've told yourself that, you say, but really, there's no sacrifice at all. I give him ashes, he gives me beauty. What a wonderful trade. I'm the one that gets the best end of the deal. It's my reasonable service. It's the best thing I could ever do for myself. Well, let's stand together. We'll pick up with this next time and talk about what holiness means, and then we'll start applying it to areas of our lives. But what I want to summarize here today, the life of holiness, separation from sin in the world, dedication to God and His will. But what I want to emphasize, it's a privilege. You see, it's the normal way to live. We're living dysfunctional lives before we come to God. God delivers us and shows us the right way to live and gives us the power to do it. It's not a burden. We shouldn't go around saying, oh, I have to live a holy life. Isn't that awful? No. It's a joy and a privilege. I'm set free. For the first time in my life, I have the ability to fulfill my eternal destiny. For the first time in my life, I know what it's like for humans to live the way our Creator intended for them to live. I participate in joy, love, peace, and a world dimension that the world knows nothing of. For the first time in my life, I have the potential to be who God wants me to be. That's holiness. Thank God. I want us just to praise Him right now. And let's give Him thanks for the privilege of holiness. Hello, thank you again for joining the podcast of First Church. We're so honored that you were able to stop by and listen to this message today. Pray it was a blessing to you. I want to remind you uh, that you can get connected with us on our social media accounts by looking up First Church Woodland or First Church Vacaville, both on Facebook and Instagram. We would love to get connected with you there. Uh, also, you can go to our website, firstchurch.app, and download our app from there and stay connected that way. And uh, again, thank you so much for joining, and we'll see you in the next podcast.